theyeshiva.net. I am honored to be able to be here today with Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, Ms. Allison Josephs, and Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz. Each one of them is doing incredible work uh, in the area of outreach and helping especially Jews who have felt disenfranchised and estranged from Orthodox Judaism. I welcome Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz, who is the founding dean of Yeshiva Darchi Noam of Muncie, and also the director of Bright Beginnings. We welcome Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, who's a prominent rabbi and speaker in New York, and Ms. Allison Josephs, the founder and director of Jew in the City and of Project Makom. Welcome. It's wonderful to be able to see you all, and thank you for working together and coordinating your schedules for Amudim. Thank you. We are going to be speaking a a little bit about, over the next few minutes, we're going to be speaking about the whole phenomenon that unfortunately has not gotten better. If anything, perhaps COVID has exacerbated this issue. The issue of many of our youth leaving the fold of Orthodox Judaism, of leaving Frumkite, and uh, going in different directions. And uh, many parents are very distraught over this. Communities are distraught over this. And we're all seeking to be part of uh, some kind of, of way of addressing the issue. And so I'd like to ask each and every one of you, from your experience, what are some of the root causes of children, for lack of a better term, going off the derech today? Is it even fair to bunch all those who leave our communities into one group? I'd like to ask Rabbi Jacobson if you wouldn't mind commenting first. As you uh, said accurately, I think it would be very unfair and difficult to put them all into one group. But I think it's important to point out some, at least some, and I'm sure my uh, esteemed colleagues can elaborate or point actually to other elements. I think one major one major component has to do with... Uh, sexual molestation, uh, even if it's not so dramatic. In my eyes or in your eyes, it may not be dramatic, but the question is the experience of the child, the boy or the girl, which can create tremendous internal dysfunction, and sometimes the parents don't know about it. They're clueless. The child himself or herself doesn't know how to process it. And by the time they reach a level of maturity where their bodies change, things in their brain become transformed dramatically. And the way they look at themselves is changed forever. As a result, their relationship to their friends, to their teachers, to Hashem, to Judaism, to their parents, to the community, to the family. This itself can happen from one extreme to another extreme. But this is very, very serious. It's very, very acute. But there is molestation of different forms, dysfunction, trauma, abuse, internal anxiety that creates situations that don't have to do with Judaism. They don't have to do with Yiddishkeit. They don't have to do with Shabbos or Yom Tif or Tfilin or Davening or a relationship with Hashem or Torah and Mitzvahs in general. But because the person is broken inside, they somehow cannot adjust or they cannot live up to the standards or they blame it becomes a smoke screen and many other factors. So I think that is uh, one uh, 
one major, major source. Thank you, Ms. Josephs. Yeah, so I would uh, totally agree um, that a lot of what we see at Project Makom is trauma-based, uh, a high percentage of sex abuse. Um, I won't speak for people that don't come to our organization because I can't claim to know the entirety of this phenomenon, but um, certainly the people that we see um, and people that don't come to our organization, but people uh, within our organization that have told me about some of their friends that have chosen to not stay within orthodoxy because our group is trying to uh, come to terms with their Judaism. Um, in addition to the trauma, I would say uh, the box being too small. I would say um, no room for questions being asked. Um, I would say um, the, not just the learning about a fear of God, but a terror of God. Um, almost to the point that I've seen a lot of our members, almost like their Bechira has been removed from them. They are, are so um, just completely scared out of their minds about what might happen if they were to deviate. Um, and yet um, doing mitzvot is so painful to them. So um, really lots of different levels of trauma, whether it's the um, sort of most obvious of the sex abuse kind or what I've learned now over the years not making room for the child to be able to say their real thoughts, to uh, be able to have their real feelings, um, to not have a place to like be hugged and kissed and feel nurtured, both physically and an emotional nurture. Um, so there's sort of many levels and layers of that. And we see, you know, it's obviously not all cases in the homes. There's sometimes abuse outside of the homes, but a lot of times the person's relationship to their parents is how they relate to God. And so um, if they see their parents as harsh and full of judgment um, and not full of love, then um, they see, you know, Hashem that way as well. Um, and so um, it's really along the same lines of, of uh, you know, the, the trauma idea. Thank you, Rabbi Horowitz. I absolutely concur um, with, with Rabbi Jacobson and, and Ms. Josephs. Um, I, 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 I like to think of it in, in really in two buckets, in two, two separate categories. And this is how I've been thinking about it and responding to it for, for almost 25 years now. Um, there's Ozvimet Adat, children or adults who abandon religion only. And then it's Ozvimet Achayim, that are leaving life. And I think it's important for parents and educators to, to, to understand the difference between them and, and be able to help diagnose it a little better. So Ozvimet Adat means that you have, you have an adolescent or a young adult who's in, who's in college, in school, they have friends, they have a social life, they're happy, they're looking forward. You know, the, the gears are moving forward. Just God's not part of that. So I, I think of that as Ozvimet Adat. I think there are many different reasons. I'll share a few with you. I, I did I did many surveys over the past 23 years with, with youngsters who, you know, exit interviews to find out and what their opinion is. And it usually was not exactly what the adults think it is. Um, but Azumet Achayim is what, you know, when you see kids who are not functioning, they're not happy, they're, 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 not, um, they're not moving forward. They're just, they're really abandoning life. Um, I felt for many years now that it's way over 90%, uh, 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 close to, you know, very, very high percentage uh, is trauma-related. Um, so, and, and on the other hand, the Ozvimet Adat, the, the kids who are abandoning religion, um, the top answers that, we, that I've gotten 
it's been almost consistent over 20 years. Um, some of them have questions of faith. Some of them actually, it's not that they're leaving, they were never in. You know, it's not that they're abandoning religion. It's that, that they were never sold. You know, we, we make a mistake when we have for five-year-olds coming into our school, we, we assume that they're customers. And all you got to do is just cover ground with them. And, and I, I think many of them just weren't sold in the first place. They're just not convinced. It's a, it could be a faith issue. It could be, it could be other things. Um, a lot of the kids, it's just not yet, meaning they're, they, they plan on settling down and, and, having, and leading religious lives. At 17, they're just not interested yet. Like, like I have some analogies. I don't want to go into all of it now, but I found a, a, a significant percentage of the kids, if you ask them, even while they're uh, abandoning religion and not keeping you know, Shabbos or whatever, if you ask them where would you want to send your kids to school, very often it might be two clicks to the left of the parents, uh, but but they eventually want to settle down. They're just not ready yet, um, and I think inflexibility on the on the part of parents. That meaning that you have a child that's clearly not cut out for X and you give them Z or Y and, and um, it's just being rigid with them and saying that everybody's got to be doing the same thing. Uh, poor parenting, um, you know, not being able to uh, um, effectively parent the challenging child. There's nothing, there's nothing in, in anyone's life that prepared them to dealing with a teenager who's, you know, who's having a difficult time. So I think, I think uh, um, inconsistencies, by the way, was, was a big one that they, you know, no society is perfect. They see inconsistencies among the adults and you hear about that a lot when you, when you, when you talk to them. So again, I think there are two, there are two groups, and, and I think it's really important that we, that we really reflect on what the issues are and, and how, to, how to remediate them, how to fix them. Thank you. Thank you uh, to each one of you. Um, I just wanted to reflect. Um, each one of you has commented to one degree or another on root causes of why uh, some people leave the Frome community. And each one of you points to some kind of either trauma or something dysfunctional going on in the upbringing of the, of the young man or the young woman. And I want to provoke you for just a moment, and perhaps you can engage each other in this, in this idea. Is it possible that there are certain people who are brought into this world who simply are not meant to fit into the firm world? In other words, even if the child had an idyllic upbringing in the most loving, caring uh, family, uh, the best school, the best education, is it possible that even such a child would leave the faith simply because they are themselves a free spirit? And, and in particular, this would lead us to, if the answer is yes or no to this question, it would lead us to come up with different strategies. Let me just give you an example. How should a family deal with a family member who has left Yiddishkeit? And there's always that concern that this uh, young man or young woman is going to be a negative impact upon the other siblings that are around the Shabbos table. And how do we deal with that person? Does that person deserve to be distanced from the family? Or should, or should there be a space carved out for that individual around the Shabbos table, even if they're not Shomer Torah mitzvahs? 
And to extend that even further, what about an entire community? Does an entire community make space for someone who's not from, or, sh- or to what degree should that person be distanced from the community? Uh, to what extent should we be working on bringing those disaffected people back into Yiddishkeit versus trying to find a place for the non-observant Jew within a Torah community? And, and, and are there sufficient types of orthodoxy today to accommodate everyone who doesn't find themselves fitting into that? I think Ms. Josephs talked about the box being too small. So these, these are issues that we say are big adult. So if you wouldn't mind going first, please let us know your thoughts. So number one, um, it's possible that there's someone that could be born and just wasn't meant to fit into the firm world. I haven't met that person yet, but it's possible that person exists. So I certainly, I think that would be foolish to say that that isn't possible. This is my sense, um, even for my own children. Some of my kids, well, all my kids are questioning. All my kids have, you know, big questions, philosophical questions. But I see for one of my kids right now, um, they're in the middle of a lot of questions right now. And sometimes they don't feel like davening. But the way that they talk about themselves it's like being Jewish is so part of who they are because they love where they come from. They love their family. They love what they're part of. And it's just so embedded in who they are that it's hard to imagine that there would be a break there. Now, is it possible for someone? I I can't say that it's not possible, but um, my sense is that if you love who you are and where you come from, you want to continue that. Um, In terms of should we um, distance ourselves from people who have left as a family, as a community? No, we should not. Um, we should love our fellow Jew. Um, we should love our family members, our, our children unconditionally. Um, we should not try to um, parent other adults. Um, when someone is an adult, God gave them Bechira and it's up to them to use. Um, and, you know, people write to us sometimes and tell us at Project Makom, you know, I have this relative or this friend, you know, who's OTD, you know, can you reach out to them? And we always tell them, no, we don't do recruitment. We are here for the people that um, that are looking for what we have to offer. So the question is, what can you do? You can be a great example of a Torah observant Jew. Um, you can be, uh, you know, put out loving kindness. You can be a walking Kiddush Hashem. Um, you can be a person that engages in complicated questions and complex answers and, and makes room for different opinions. And maybe that will be appealing to the person that has left and maybe it won't, but ultimately it's their decision. Um, and I think, um, I mean, look, I was raised sort of with a fiddler on the roof type of idea, non-observant, but like if we intermarry, my parents would sit Shiva, even though they fed us, uh, you know, cheeseburgers. But I don't think that that's where the world can be today. I think we have to, you know, make the tent much bigger, let people make their own decisions um, and really embody what Torah Jews are and give people the space to come back should they want to. Thank you, Rabbi Horowitz. Um, so I, I definitely think that there are, there are children, it's basically really small adults, you know, they, they have a, a certain personality package that they, they're just contrarians, uh, that they just, uh, they challenge whatever they're learning. If you, uh, whatever it is that, that they're around, they're just challenging. So, and, and, you know, you asked if it comes from a perfect family. I, I've been dealing with a, a, a fantastic rabbi who, who has a beautiful family life. He has a number of children, and there's one of them that's just challenging every parasha. He calls me up every parasha that he has. The kid has, like, complaints, like social justice-type complaints. Why is it, what's with this carbonos? And how could everyone throw a kid out of the house? 
you know, and, 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 and he's just tearing his hair out. And I told him, I said, I think your kid has a heart the Shama. He has an elevated Neshama. He's, I said, it's not phony. He really feels this way. And, and he's, he's, he's expressing himself in ways that, that are challenging. And sometimes, you know, you can't say that adults don't have these questions also. So I think there's a group of people that, that I wouldn't say that they're not, um, that they're not, not meant to belong in the firm world, we have to be more tolerant and and give them space. That's what I meant about being rigid. I was on a panel with Rabbi Ozeri from the Sephardi, from the Syrian community in Brooklyn um, at an Agoda convention Friday night. It was in the late 90s. And we were talking about teens at risk. And it was Friday night. We weren't being recorded, so we were able to be more candid. And he got up, he said something so fascinating. He said, look, he says, look, folks, he's talking to everybody. He said, look, folks, I'm not going to tell you that we don't have problems with our children. Of course we do. Everybody does. He said, the one thing we don't have is this, this stigma thing. We don't put our children in, in boxes, like as Miss Joseph said. We don't put them in boxes. He said that, we said, we have a bed Knesset. They have a shul. Everybody's welcome. If somebody's not observant and comes in and wants to pray for 10 minutes, and, and walks in with, you know, with, with uh, clearly coming in off the street. He's welcome. He sits next to the rabbi. Nobody bats an eyelash. He said, we don't have this, uh, we don't have these, these gradations. And we don't have these boxes that we put people in so that they have a more difficult time if they're not conforming to exactly the way, the way their family or their community is used to. So, uh, you know, and my response to him was, that I said you didn't have the Haskalah, you didn't have the Enlightenment period, and and that I think that did make us us more wary of change and more more um, when a child asks a question or or refuses to do certain parts because they don't mean anything to him or her, we tend to extrapolate that they're not interested in religion or they're they're going to wind up being non-religious completely when maybe it's just a phase or maybe it's something they need to talk about or maybe it's something that really are, that, that is questionable. I mean, you know, how many of us read through Amalek and like, oh, okay, you know, like these are, these are legitimate questions. And, and that were greatest leaders had issues of faith, why, you know, why bad things happen to good people or vice versa. So I think, I think to, to allow uh, children, especially teenagers to be able to talk candidly, to be able to ask the questions, like the seminaries do in Israel, right? The, the, especially the girls' seminaries, they went for 12 years to Beis Yaakov, where they were basically, you know, taught and taught and taught. And then the teacher says, you can ask anything you want. And they're not, we had three daughters who went through it. You know, they, they're just not accustomed to that type of thinking. So I think that's, that's, that's just an important piece of it. Thank you. And Rabbi Jacobson, please. Thank you for your thank you for the beautiful, I think, and uh, extraordinary, relevant, and powerful insights. I don't want to repeat what my esteemed colleague said because you heard it, and we all should internalize their precious words. I would just maybe emphasize a few points and additional points. Number one, sometimes you have extraordinary parents and beautiful homes and beautiful families who do quote unquote everything right. And yet, the apple falls far from the tree. And as one of the great rabbis said, apples don't fall far from the tree when there's a regular weather outdoors. But when there's a thunderstorm, then apples sometimes fall far from the tree. 
So sometimes parents right away blame themselves. You know, it's our fault, it's my fault. Maybe they're right. Maybe they're completely wrong. That doesn't help to blame yourself. It's very painful. You need a good support system. When you have such a child or such children, you need to be vulnerable. You need to learn to cry. You need to learn to laugh. And most importantly, the marriage has to be strong because it's the marriage, when there's a good, powerful marriage, that can carry a family and it can ultimately help that child and help the father and mother and the other siblings. So I would always encourage you, focus on your marriage and very often problems in the marriage subconsciously affect the children very deeply. Sometimes it's not a child issue. It's a parent issue. Sometimes it's not. So everything could look wonderful on the outside. Don't blame. Ask yourself, what does Hashem want from me right now? Number two, every neshama has its journey. Bal yidach bimenu nidach, the Pasuk says in Shmuel Beis. The Shalah writes, and many of the greatest Kabbalists and mystics and rabbis write, every neshama ultimately is a chelik alekami mal. It's divine. It's sacred. So the question is not if they're going to come back. In a way, they're never separated. There's nothing I can do to sever my the cord with my child. The halacha is, So the relationship is always there. You have to believe in it. Believe in those children. Believe in their souls. Even if the journey is painful and difficult. And I would also emphasize something that the stipler gone I thought it was a very moving insight. I said it not long ago at the Torah Masora um, uh, convention, one of the Torah Masora conventions. The stipler said to him, it's a fa- fascinating insight. It says that Yaakov, Rashi brings, Yaakov crossed the Jordan River, he ran away from Esau, and he only had a stick. His father couldn't give him anything else. A couple of dollars, talus and tefillah, nothing else. He had a lot of things. He had a lot of wealth. But Eliphaz, the son of Esau, Eliphaz, the son of Esau, pursued Yaakov to kill him because Esau wanted Yaakov dead. But Rashi says, Because Eliphaz grew up in the bosom of his Zayde Yitzchak, Therefore, he couldn't get himself to murder Yaakov. Instead, Yaakov told him, take my money. And a poor man is like Chashav Kameis, is like lifeless. He gave him a shir, Masechta Nedarim, Davchav, Oni Chashav Kameis. And Yaakov remained alive. That's why he was broke. So the stipler said, let's think about this. Yitzchak knew that Yishmol was thrown out of the house because of him. Sarah wanted it. And Hashem told Avram, listen to Sarah. You always listen to your wife. Here he had an Esau. Throw him out of the house. At least his grandson, Eliphaz, the Pasuk defines in Vayishlach, was engaged in the most heinous, immoral, promiscuous acts. You could learn the Rashi's at the end of Vayishlach. I won't elaborate. Every level of incest was in Eliphaz's life, in his biography. His resume was quite rich with immorality. Mela Esav is your child, but your grandchild? Throw him out of the house. Eliphaz remained in the bosom of Yitzchak. Said the stipler, you would think it was inconsequential. Yitzchak was maybe a nice man. He kept the anical there. Stipler says, no. Because of that, Yaakov was not killed, which means all of Klal Yisrael, every Jew living today, we can have a program today and sit and learn and grow together because Yitzchak made sure to hold on tight to Eliphaz. You don't sever your cord with your child. 
generation or two ago, it really was common for families to, to circle the wagon if a child abandoned religion, thinking that it's going to affect the other family members. Um, thankfully, most the vast majority of families are not doing that anymore. And, and I have not found it to be contagious you know, where, where other children catch it, so to speak, and, and become, a, you know, leave abandoned religion because of another sibling. There may be some things in the home that cause the first person, the first child to go out that aren't being addressed. Um, but but I haven't found it to be, uh, you know, to directly correlate. Um, I think the best thing parents can do, like Rabbi, Rabbi Jacobson was, saying, was talking about family units and marriages and, and to, to to sit down with you know to sit down with the child and say look we love you unconditionally this is a journey we're here for you you can talk to us about anything and and we're with you and everybody says so what do you tell the other kids so my feeling is first of all if you abandon the child because they leave religion what does that say about religion and you're telling all the other children that my love for you is conditional on you on you keeping uh, Torah and mitzvahs. So what kind of love is that? Um, but I, th- I think I, I advise parents to tell the other children, look, you know, Rifki Yitzi is going through a tough phase right now, and it's difficult for us, but we're going to close an eye because that's what we're supposed to do because we're a family. I was at a I was at a recovery retreat in Boca Raton, run by a wonderful Chavat Shliach. Um, there was, it was a few years ago and, you know, no, you never, all the people there were, were addicts and you never ask who, you know, who you hear, you know, of course, you know, it's completely confidential. You don't say anything, but there was a, an entire table of about, I would say probably 20 people, all Hasidish, but genuine, real Hasidim. Um, and there were three generations. There were like grandparents and, and, you know, 30 somethings and, and some grandchildren, and of course, I didn't say anything, but I walked by the table and one of the young ladies, a, a daughter, a daughter-in-law there, she said, you're probably wondering what we're all doing here. We're not all addicts. <laughs> she, said, she said, they had a brother there um, who was struggling with addiction. It so happened he wasn't religious and very visibly so. He's the only one in his family. And this woman said it was it was remarkable. I asked her if I could come join the table. I sat there for an hour just talking to the people there, to the family. But they said, we're a family. This is what families do. And and they sent the message to this kid. It says that whatever how we understand this, that Hashem goes to Golis with us. And that was it was I, I was so, I moved now a few years later. It was so moving when they said this. And they, and they just said it matter-of-factly. Is that a mishpacha? This is what, this is what families do. Um, and I, I would certainly say for so many different reasons. First of all, practically speaking, uh, and the, giving the right message to the rest of the family. All we know, we know that the best results happen when parents do this. Um, I would just encourage if anybody wants to read this, there's just a remarkable article written by the son of Ela Wiesel, Alicia. Have any of you seen the piece? Yeah. Uh, it's called Just Be. He he writes about his, about, <laughs> I'm going to lose it again, about his rebellion 
and how his father dealt with it. And, and it, was, it's, it should be a must read for every single parent. It was in the Jewish week. If you just look up Elisha Wiesel, uh, you know, Eli Rebellion, and it'll come right up. And, and he said that, that he, he, he said specifically, I rebelled against my parents and I didn't want to listen. And his father just said, he said, just be, meaning I love you. <laughs> I'm sorry. <clears throat> the amazing part of that piece is his father had died. He, he wrote it on the first yard side of his father. And he says that how it motivated him to move closer to religion, be more spiritual because of his father's love for him. And he told the story of a young of a, a friend of his, a female woman, who's who was went to an Ivy League school and she was a fantastic student that her parents never had enough. It was always another degree and another this that they always were disappointed with what she had and how it affected her later in life. Sorry about sorry, I lost Thank it. You. Thank you, Rabianki. That was beautiful. Um, so, you know, but we have this whole history, as you pointed out, and it goes back far beyond the 19th century with the Haskalah, you know, of sitting Shiva for children who became Mishumadim, or, you know, that's the old, the old fashioned way of saying that they left Yiddishkeit. And so what each one of you has reflected upon how logical it is to only embrace the child who has left Yiddishkeit even more. And yet we have this historical backdrop of distancing ourselves for self-preservation to be able to, like you said, Rabbi Harowitz, to circle the wagons. So how do we balance that? And what, what has changed? What has changed in the 21st century uh, that gives us license to be able to look back on our past and say, that was then, but it doesn't work anymore and this is now? Can you reflect on that, please? So as I'm hearing about these parents loving the children unconditionally, which is gorgeous, I'm thinking about the scene in the the Netflix movie Unorthodox where the main character is given a gun and basically told, you know, take care of yourself. Like, we don't want you here. And we have members who said they've been explicitly told by their parents, like, I wish you would just kill yourself. So, um, I mean, it's obviously like horrifying. And, um, you know, how, how do you sort of come back when the people that were so brought you here that were supposed to um, sort of hold you and um, love you your whole life um, don't want you because you haven't ended up the way they want you to. And by the way, the people coming to us are looking for religion still. So they're still even trying to be observant, but not in the exact mold their parents want. Um, But I think um, we've made a lot of progress in mental health, mental health understanding. We have more of an understanding now of sex abuse than we did, you know, uh, a long time ago. We have more of an understanding of suicide of all different mental health issues. And I think it's actually the Torah way is uh, using the best science and medicine of the times to, um, you know, uh, reflect how we make Piskei Halacha. So while we may have thought in previous generations that the safest thing was to circle the wags and push away, you know, the kid that left, um, it's the question that comes up during the Seder. It's sort of an uncomfortable question. We made um, a mock Seder for our Project Mako members who were in, um, Solid, you know, staying alone during coronavirus. Um, we, we filmed the Seder ahead of time that they could um, play before uh, Yansef began. And we were thinking, like, how do we deal with, uh, you know, the uh, the child that doesn't want to be a part of the, the nation anymore? But because we've made now a lot of progress in understanding um, just the, the human psyche, I think it is so clear that um, 
it's the right thing to do. Um, and it is also, it happens to be an effective way because the pushing away, I don't think that ever leads anyone back. Um, and I don't think it should be sort of so goal, um, goal oriented that, that, oh, if I do this thing and sort of act like I love them, maybe I'll get what I want. No, you should act the right way and love unconditionally because that is the right thing to do. And it, additionally, it may be the most helpful way for the child to return. Thank you. Um, Rabbi Jacobson, do you want to reflect on that further? Yeah, I would just make, uh, I'd make three, uh, three uh, I think, important points. Number one, I just think, uh, as, as my esteemed colleagues spoke about the importance of the connection and the attachment and the love, but let's not confuse that. You have to know who the child is. Sometimes a certain structure and discipline and challenging the child may be very, very healthy and productive. Sometimes it could be a disaster. If I'm demanding my child to run a marathon and God forbid both of his legs are broken, it's abusive, it's torture. But if I'm challenging my child to be able to bring out inner potential that exists, but he or she may need that healthy structure, don't be afraid of that if your child needs that. Love does not mean there's no structure and there's no discipline. Depends what age Depends if there's trauma, there's no trauma, depends what the circumstances are. And it's very important to have a good and healthy support system. Not every therapist gets it. He may be a great therapist, he may not understand your child, he may not understand the circumstances. Make sure, go get help, advice, but make sure the advice resonates. Make sure it's effective. If somebody is giving you advice and the relationship is deteriorating and the house is becoming even more catastrophic and there's no light at the end of the tunnel, you got to change the doctor. you got to change the prescription. Don't become subservient completely and lose your personality. Mama knows best. Daddy knows best if they're healthy people. I'm not talking about if they're abusive and they themselves maybe have to be incarcerated. That's number one. Another important point I should just say is as follows. If you study, and I am quite an assiduous student of this literature, the entire literature of uh, the early Hasidic movement, the Baal Shem Tov, who was born in 1698, that's exactly the time that the Enlightenment begin, began. The language of Judaism in all of the literature of the Baal Shem Tov and all of his students throughout the generations, even though many Hasidim don't know this, was completely directed on the unconditional relationship that God has with every soul and that we have to have with ourselves and with our children and with every Jewish soul. So you're talking about 300 years ago. Did we always follow it? I don't think we always followed it. And I'm not here to judge anybody. But sometimes, remember, people worship religion instead of God. If I am a very firm person, I can become intoxicated by religion instead of Hashem. Hashem has no image. So when my child is not living up to my standards, I have to go deep into myself and be introspective and ask myself, is my disappointment here because of the neighbors, the family, the reputation, the shiduchim, the image, or my expectations of what I wanted to have in order to feel good about myself and my nachas? Or maybe it's time for me to transcend my ego and realize that I am a messenger of Hashem to take care of this neshama, to take care of this soul. This is a very deep, painful, introspective process that we have to do. When we throw people away and we negate them, it looks sometimes holy, but sometimes it's coming from a deep ego. 
where I'm not in tune with what Hashem really wants from me as a father or as a mother at this moment. And finally, the last point I would mention is, and I don't mean to invoke this lightly, but it has a lot, I think, it's important to mention the Holocaust. The Holocaust was a unique phenomenon in history. It targeted not religious Jews, not rabbis, not tzaddikim, not rosh yeshivas, them too. It targeted every Jew, including an atheist, a left-wing socialist, communist, agnostic, anti-religious, anti-Jewish. You know, half the Jews who died in the Holocaust, I don't know if it's half or a little less, whatever the number is, many of them, or a huge amount of them, have not been involved in Judaism, quite to the contrary. And yet, the hatred to them was identical, like the venom and the hatred to the holiest, greatest, most righteous, religious, observant, mystical tzaddik, or rebbe, or rashishiva. And I think it taught us one of the profoundest lessons about the Jewish people. And that is, if Hitler was ready to hunt down every single Jew in hate, no matter right-wing, left-wing, religious, secular, liberal, conservative, believer, non-believer, our duty in our generation is to hunt down every single Jew in love, regardless of the circumstances, the background, the affiliation, or the way they seem today externally, believing in that eternal Kedusha and holiness that exists in every Neshama. Thank you. Each and every one of you, Baruch Hashem, has a steady flow of traffic to your email inbox, uh, to your phone, um, and there are very, very conscientious and loving parents out there who are seeking out organizations like Amudim, which is doing an outstanding job in, in what it does as well, and each and every one of you uh, is working towards those same goals. What would you say to a parent or uh, a, a family member uh, who is watching this uh, and is just feeling too ashamed or too stigmatized, like Rabbi Jacobson was referring to, um, they're, wor- they're worried about the shidduchim. They're worried about the, the bad name that the family might acquire. What words of advice, or chizuk actually, can you offer to a family member who sees one of their children or siblings in tremendous pain and turmoil, and yet doesn't feel that they can, they don't feel the strength that they need to be able to stand up and say, I need help? So I usually... Um... I tell parents, um, you know, you said a bit, a little bit provocative. I sometimes, depending on the situation, but often I'll tell parents that if they make decisions that are not in the child's best interest because they're worried about being embarrassed, which is absolutely normal, and and we're all humans and we live in a fishbowl and all of that. But if they're making decisions because they're getting embarrassed, my many or most times they wind up getting much more embarrassed about much bigger things later on. That that the child is dressing a little a little bit inappropriately or doing some things that are, you know, pushing the limits, and the parents clamp down and they wouldn't if they lived on a farm. You know, I asked parents, imagine you lived on a farm by yourself. Would you say something about this? Or is it only because you're understandably embarrassed about, about the others? But it usually works that, it, that they wind up, these, 
they get more embarrassed for bigger things later on. Um, and and the kids, by the way, very the kids very much respect that the parents are closing an eye. They get it, and and it it only makes them feel more positive towards religion. I, I just wanted to uh, say something, Rabbi Warwai. Let me tell you what a cover it is to be with them, with with all three of you. Really, it's such a pleasure. Um, on the first point you said about the changing therapists, I absolutely agree 100%. You said about, I remember the exact words you used, but you very well said, you said very well that you should trust their instincts, right? What were the words you used? Something like that, right? Mother, I mother. said, Mom, mama knows best. <laughs> mama knows best, right. And trust your instincts. But I, I just want to... Not always, I, I guess. Not always. What? But. Not always, but yeah, there's not none, none of none of what we're saying. All three, all four. It has of to us resonate. You have to feel right, that the right. advice is, is healthy. But I, I just want to point a, a message to parents whose kids are struggling. Um, and I'm not disagreeing with what you said, Rabbi Wai. I'm just offering a different perspective on it. Um, I was at a wedding of of a very contrarian kid a few number of years ago, and. Um, I've been coaching the parents literally for 10 years and they did, they really were model parents. They closed the night to so many things and, and Baruch Hashem, the kid got married. I just happened to see him um, earlier this week with the child, Baruch Hashem, wheeling a carriage. Um, so I, a number of people in the audience had adolescents. It was very, very interesting response. And they, they, right after the chuppah, I got a bracha the chuppah. But the, they, they knew from their friends that I've been coaching the parents. And they came over and they said, Rohar, what's fast? Regalachas. What did you do? <laughs> what did you do? How did you do this? Not me. It wasn't me. The parents did. So I told them, I said, I never talk about any individual children. But I just want to tell you one thing, that when you get good advice to close an eye and all the things that the four of us would tell parents to do, very often, the first year, two or three, it gets it gets worse, not better, right away. In other words, the children are doing level X or whatever. They're, they're three clicks away from their family. Now the parents sit down with the child and they go to someone, one of us, a therapist or, or, or whomever, and they, they find out what works and they do the hard work and they sit down and they say, look, sweetheart, we're with you. Um, we, you have our unconditional love. At that point, very often the child says, okay, <laughs> I only did three clicks because I was afraid of getting thrown out of the house. Now that my parents are cool with it, so they go five <laughs> clicks away. I, I've noticed this hundreds of times, literally hundreds of times. And the parents come back and they say, Rabbi Horowitz or Ms. Joseph or Rabbi Jacobson or Rabbi Karapin, we're doing what you said and it's so much worse. They're just flagrantly doing it right in front of us. They were listening, you know, and... I, that's part of it. So, so I just want to, uh, again, mother knows best, Rabbi Jacobson, and I agree with what you said. Yeah, but I think parents should know that very often when they do what needs to be done and the, the incredibly difficult part of doing this, don't expect instant results. Quite to the contrary, usually gets worse for a little bit. And then when they're ready, then it, it starts coming back together. I just want to add, beautifully said, Rabbi Yankee, thank you, and all the panelists. I would just add, I think, one important point. The, a Jew told me 
He's a very prominent Jew, a very special person. He told this to me today, literally, Mamish, two hours ago. He has eight children. Six of them could not go through what you would call the mainstream yeshiva system. They could not. They could not be successful. They could not find satisfaction. And they ended up leaving the system, struggling with Yiddishkeit. And uh, he told me that he was once speaking to the Mashgiach of Lakewood. Hagon HaTzadik Reb Solomon Shlita. He should be Shavu Rufu Shlemo Kreva. And he told me, Reb Matisio looked at me. He was a mentor, a me, he's a mentor of his, a Rebbe of his. And he told him these words. He said, if I was God, <laughs> Reb Matisio said to this Jew, he said, if I was God, if I was the Rebbein I would send you and your wife all these types of souls. I would not send you a soul that can go through the system. I would never do it if I was God. You know why? Because I know you are a trusted shliach. You and your wife will fulfill the mission that I need you to fulfill for these neshamas. And of course he said, I was thinking, thanks, but no thanks. But then we both had a chuckle. Now, I don't think he was being dismissive of the pain. It's very, very painful, my dearest friends. It's very painful. We have Mesiris Nefesh to inculcate in our children Yerushamayim, Avas Hashem, Avas Atayr, Avas Yisrael, to be Erlichayidin. It's the blessing, the wish of every mother when she lights candles and sheds tears that her children should grow up to be <coughs> proud Jews permeated with love of God and love of humanity and love of Torah. And then the dream shatters. It's very, very painful. And it's at this point I share with all of you, myself and all of us, we have to make a metamorphosis, a spiritual metamorphosis, and ask not what God can do for you, but ask what you can do for God. It's not anymore about satisfying my community, the uncles, the aunts, the shaduchim fitting in. It's much deeper than that. Hashem has given you these souls who are struggling. He entrusted these souls with you. Fasten the seatbelt and go on this journey with pain, but with dignity, with resilience, with fortitude, with wisdom, and with a lot of compassion to yourself, to the child, and with a lot of love. Thank you. That was beautiful. Beautiful uh, sentiments. The last question that I have for each of you, um, and again, with tremendous gratitude to Amudim and to each and every one of you for giving of your time for this important discussion. Um, uh, Ms. Josephs touched on it, that we are living during a pandemic, which we, Bezrat Hashem, hope that will be over very soon uh, with the vaccine, and that, God willing, by this time next year, it'll all be a, a memory. But um, how... Has this affected? I mean, there are articles I've seen coming from Eretz Yisrael discussing how the closure of our yeshivas and our shuls uh, to, to one degree or another has really contributed to young people leaving the fold and just going on their own way. And uh, I'm just wondering if you can reflect on that and how uh, even amidst the pandemic, we can keep our children 
uh, loved and close to the Ribbono Shalom. Please, if you could. Uh, first of all, I uh, I completely concur with that. The corona has been a big nisayin and a big challenge. And uh, and I have to say, you know, as much as I am a fan, all of us, you know, care first and foremost about pikuach nefesh, which is the health, the considerations of health, we also have to realize the other side. And that is that having the kids, the boys and the girls, the teenagers, the bachams, the girls quarantined, posed and poses tremendous psychological, emotional, social, spiritual, and physical challenges. The biggest issue that I see is the technology. Everybody started to use technology. A lot of schools went over to technology. And even if there's filters, those kids are brilliant. So there's issues of addiction to pornography. Very, very serious issue. Addiction to pornography. Just screen addiction, gaming addiction, just being glued to screens. Sometimes kids who are anyway struggling, not having a social life anymore, it exasperates, it intensifies the pain and the brokenness so much more. A kid who was completely healthy and happy, he'll get through it. But a kid who was anyway broken, without that structure, on screens for hours, sometimes all nights, beyond what the parents know, had and continues to have catastrophic, catastrophic results. And I would say the first thing is, it's very, very important when you could still prevent to know exactly what's happening in the house in terms of internet, in terms of filters, in terms of screens, in terms of phones. Don't surrender to pressure that is dysfunctional and can ruin children. It's very, very important. Again, every child is different. You have to know who you are. But don't be afraid. Preventive medicine to create standards that will allow them to grow and not to really socially deteriorate, which according to even adults, I see adults, and I'm not excluded. Adults are addicted. You can't have a conversation with them. Families don't sit together. We're all addicted. This is a serious problem. You have to learn to put away the phones. We have to learn to connect as people. Connection is the deepest thing. And I would just add one more point, and that is when we're quarantined, the family relationship becomes more vital than ever. Have dinner together, exercise together, dance together, jog together, play games together, daven together, learn together, go on walks together. There's play Monopoly together, play football or Frisbee, but bond, connect, talk eat together, barbecue together, make bonf, whatever you could. The bonding between a husband and a wife and the children, the emotional bond between tatis and kinderlach and mommies and kinderlach is probably the most powerful antidote and remedy to combat the adversity that we're all facing. Rev. Daniel, you know, I, I think ultimately a lot of it has to do with self-confidence and you know we we think of the best teacher you had in school you know he or she projected a certain image that they were in control and there's nothing that you can do to rattle them and when you get rattled you, you lash out in ways that are that are not productive so i i know it's hard when you have a child that's struggling but i, I think we do have a derech a path um, that that could could make things much better and, and try to have the self-confidence in yourself uh, um, that, that you're, you're able to get your kids through this. Um, 
I said a number of years ago, for the first time in public, that I um, I really can tell with pretty pretty good accuracy within three, five, ten minutes of meeting a couple if their if their child is going to make it or not. And what it usually sounds like is that the parents that come in and they say, we have an issue in our family. Um, we're going to work on this together. What should we do? And they express that they're going to be flexible and they're going to do whatever it takes and that their love for their child and their love for their children and their family unit is going to supersede everything. Somehow, somehow, the vast overwhelming majority of those parents make it. And when I hear parents coming and saying, you know, our first two, three kids are, are fantastic and everything, and this one, and they project everything on the child, um, I cringe because, you know, it usually doesn't end up well. So I, I just encourage you to be positive. Think of it as a family. Think about, about doing this together um, and that your love for your family um, is going to get you through this um, and, and try not to blame that child, even though, look, some children are, are, you know, are just easy to raise and some children aren't. That's just the way it is. Um, but, but do your best, you know, the kids, the kids that are sometimes the hardest to raise um, often turn out to be fantastic adults. I tell parents when they say, I'm, I'm, I'm tearing my hair out with this kid. I said, be careful you're going to stay in his house or her house for long periods of time. So, you know, just hang I, in. I, I completely concur. Many times it is the restless spirit that has the greatest potential for accomplishing yep. amazing things in the world. Right. Um, we, uh, we, we've been discussing the issue of how the pandemic has uh, exacerbated in to many degrees the ability to maintain one's religious commitments and some some of our youth are are disaffected simply because they've been quarantined or cooped up or kept out of the schools and the shuls. So I know, Ms. Josephs, you made reference to this because uh, you said that Project Macomb had done a, a Pesach Seder for a number of people, even amidst COVID. It, can, can you reflect a little bit about how this pandemic has uh, perhaps changed the nature of the way that uh, we should be doing business with our kids and with our youth? Um, I mean, I can speak, you know, the people that we're reaching are uh, 18 and older. Um, and the people that we're reaching, a lot of them do not have families to go back to. So it's a little bit of a different conversation, but I can just speak to a little bit about what we're seeing. Uh, first of all, our rate of signups have uh, doubled since the uh, pandemic started. So um, we see that sort of connection that we mentioned before that, uh, trauma and difficult, you know, sort of emotional situations um, kind of maybe forces the issue on religious struggles. So, um, you know, that's not a surprise at all. Um, one of our most impactful ways to help people that were struggling was with Shabbos placement, um, finding homes um, that were full of love and full of non judgment and just places to, you know, welcome our members in um, to um, be able to just be taken care of. And we can't do that for, you know, for the most part during the pandemic. And that's really been a very difficult thing because one thing that we didn't mention before, I would like to say, I would say a lot of the people that we're getting also are very bright, have a lot of great questions. And this is a thing that came up before. 
well, what about my bright kid that has a lot of questions that didn't leave? What's the distinction? And I think um, for the kid that has a lot of questions but has that space and love to ask them and also sometimes even live with discomfort, but in sort of in a loving, accepted space, they can live with the questions. They can live with challenges in the Torah. They can live with difficulty in halacha because they just sort of have room to be. When you have that child or that person that has those questions, that great intellect, but has no space to feel loved or to be, um, that's when they start to, I would say, come out So, um, or, or fall out. So um, I would say, you know, it's sort of the parallel to the listeners. If you can be that space, um, you know, to be of, of love, of refuge, um, of space for the child that you may have in your home. Um, I would say that's really the biggest distinction. Our members are lacking that. We normally find them surrogate parents and surrogate families to fill in that gap. But if you are a parent that's listening, that is prepared to, you know, really um, do anything for your child's health and wholeness, um, you know, just kind of making your home space as healthy and happy. And sometimes when my family sits around and we just laugh together, like on a Friday night meal, and we're all just giggling about something, I think this is, this is what, um, I think like imprint some of the most positive memories of childhood that, you know, the family just sat around together laughing and enjoying each other's time and, and joking together. And that is the stuff like our members were reflecting about how little laughter was in their home. And some of them said, well, at least on Sukkot, on Sukkot in the Sukkah, we had, had like a glimmer of hope. We sang a song at, and then one member said, even on Sukkot, even then there was never a laugh. There was so laugh with your family and, and try to make, you know, good times as much as possible and, and be that space and that refuge for them to come home to. And that's a beautiful way for us to, to conclude our discussion for today. Again, I want to thank each one of our panelists, Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, Ms. Allison Josephs. Thank God that we have you as resources and thank God that we have Amudim to be able to assist you in all of your work and to be able to help all of those people who are looking for some spiritual connection. And uh, thank you all for listening so much. Chazak, 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 venis chazak. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.